at, at a broad level, the kind of questions that motivate my research concern how it is that we come to understand the world the way we do, the social world and the physical world, why it is that we're so motivated to try to get an understanding of the world, and what it is that does, that does for us. Um, so those are pretty broad questions that have been approached from lots of different disciplinary perspectives. And my own work is most informed by a few different disciplines. So one of them is psychology, where people have been very interested in the kinds of learning mechanisms that allow us to come to understand aspects of the world, uh, but also philosophy. So traditionally, epistemologists, philosophers of science, have been interested in how it is that we can get a grip on what's going on in the world, how it is that we can effectively interact with the world, when it is that we arrive at something that we might believe is justified, true, and so on. Um, so those are very, very broad questions, and part of the way that I've tried to get a grip on them empirically is to focus on the question of explanation. So people are extremely motivated to explain. If you start eavesdropping on your friends and your neighbors, you'll notice that a lot of what they do is try to explain things that happened in their experience. They try to explain why it is that someone was happy or upset, why things happened the way that they did. Um, and in, in some ways, this is actually, I think, kind of puzzling that we spend so much of our time uh, looking for explanations, because explanation is a very backwards-looking kind of activity, on the face of it, at least. So if you were engaged in the project of trying to predict things, it's really clear why that's valuable. If you are trying to figure out why things occur and you can predict them, you're going to be able to structure your life to do things more effectively. If you uh, are trying to figure out how to control or intervene on the world to bring about particular outcomes, it's clear why that has some sort of instrumental value. But why are we so interested and engaged in the process of explaining? Once something has already occurred, what's the value that we get in trying to explain it or understand it? And the sort of answer that I've argued for, but that uh, many other people have as well, is that something about the process of explanation, something about the process of trying to get uh, some understanding of something, is crucial to how it is that we come to be able to then predict and intervene in the future. Something about this more backwards-looking process of trying to understand why something came to be gives us the kind of information that we need to then be able to um, navigate the world more effectively. So um, in order to try to, to study explanation, we do a few different things. Um, one of the things that um, I find really fascinating about this process is that I think it gives us some insight into the way that learning and inference work, but in a way that departs from the way that we normally think about those processes. So, Normally when people think about learning, they imagine that there's something that you don't know, um, and so you, uh, you look for it in the world in some way, you look for it in a book, you ask a person, you ask an expert, you get some new observation from the external world, and you come to learn something new because you got this new piece of external information from somebody else. Um, but if you think about the process of explanation, I think that uncovers cases that don't fit that sort of standard model of learning from someone's testimony or learning from observation. It exhibits a phenomenon that I refer to as learning by thinking. Um, and this is the phenomenon that sometimes you can come to learn something or understand something new uh, in the absence of any external data or input from another person. Um, so the way this relates to explanation is an experience that I think most people have had, which is the experience of coming to understand something better as a result of explaining it to yourself. Um, so I think teachers have this experience routinely, parents have this experience, uh, tutors and so on. Sometimes you think you understand something, you try to explain it to somebody else in the course of doing so, you realize that uh, maybe you gained some new insight you didn't have before, or maybe you realize you didn't understand it as well as you thought that you did. Um, and what I think is interesting about that process is that it's an instance of learning by thinking. When you're explaining to yourself or to somebody else without them providing uh, feedback, insofar as you gain new insight or understanding, it isn't driven by the new information that they provided. In some way, you've rearranged what was already in your head in order to get some kind of new insight. Um, so in that way, I think the process of uh, trying to explain to yourself and trying to get understanding in these ways is a lot like a thought experiment in science. 
Um, you know, for the most part, the way that science progresses is by going out, conducting experiments, getting new empirical data, and so on. Um, but occasionally in the history of science, there have been these really important episodes, um, Galileo, Einstein, and so on, where somebody will get some genuinely new insight, seem to learn something new, from engaging in a thought experiment. Um, and similarly, I think that happens actually pretty frequently in the course of everyday life, gaining much more mundane kinds of understanding. Um, but we do that when we explain to ourselves, we do that when we engage in various kinds of mental simulations or imaginative exercises, um, we do that when we make certain kinds of analogical inferences, um, and so on. So that's a process that I think um, is really fascinating uh, and is interesting from the perspective of psychology, where we can try to study that and try to get a sense of what's going on when you do something like explain to yourself, um, what consequences does that have for your ability to then uh, learn things about the world and be able to make predictions about the world and so on. Um, I think it also raises really interesting questions from the perspective of epistemology and philosophy of science. So what role do these kinds of processes play in scientific discovery? Um, uh, to what extent are the insights that we get or that we think we get when we engage in these kinds of processes likely to be reliable reflections of the way that the world actually is, right? When is it that when we engage in a process like explaining to ourselves, we're likely to end up with something that's actually uh, true or justified? When is it that we're misleading ourselves and perhaps just reinforcing our prior beliefs and misconceptions. Um, so one of the things that, that my lab has done is to try to take these kinds of ideas and these questions, but then to bring them into the lab um, and study them in uh, an experimental way using the tools of cognitive psychology. Okay. Well, there's, there's of course a long history of people being interested in explanation, and when it's valuable, uh, poets talk about it, uh, historians talk about it, uh, scientists do, Aristotle certainly did. Um, but I think what's a relatively new development is being able to think about how it is that we can study explanation using the tools of cognitive psychology, social psychology, developmental psychology, and so on. So um, maybe I can give you an example to make this um, easier to think about. Um, so this is an example uh, that comes from a set of studies where we were interested in how it is that people, and in particular young children, can learn how to draw some sort of abstract generalization from a particular concrete case. And the thought was that engaging in the process of explanation might be one of the crucial ways that you're able to do this. That might be one of the mechanisms by which we can go from our particular concrete experiences and figure out some sort of underlying principle that's the sort of thing that will allow us to generalize to new cases. So what we did uh, in the study was that we uh, uh, took advantage of a pretty well-known phenomenon, which is that children are pretty bad at extracting the moral of a story. So if you give them something like an Aesop's fable or um, another short story that's intended to teach you some lesson like um, patience is a virtue or you should be kind to people from who are different from you, what you typically find is that they do learn something from the story, but they learn it at a very, very concrete, particular sort of level. So they don't learn that it's good to be kind to people who are different from you in general. What they learn is that these dogs should be nice to three-legged dogs. Right? And that one should be nice to three-legged dogs. So they do extract some sort of lesson from the story, but it's a very concrete, specific one. And so um, one thought was that if you, if you, as you go through a story like this, if you engage in the process of asking yourself, well, why did that happen? Part of what you're going to be doing is trying to relate the concrete particulars of that particular story to some sort of more general principle or generalization. And in the course of doing that, you're going to perhaps uh, come to that generalization for the first time, but also realize how the thing you're explaining is an instance of that. And so that process of trying to make sense of something or explain it is going to perhaps help these young kids actually abstract these more general lessons. And that's what we found. So we had kids go through these storybooks, 
Um, half of them were prompted at particular points in the story to explain why particular events in the story happened. They provided explanations and were not given any feedback on whether those explanations were right or wrong or good or bad. And in a control condition, we would stop kids at the same points in the story and we would basically ask them yes, no questions that would draw attention to the same aspect of the story. And what we found at the end is that when we asked the kids what they thought the lesson of the story was, the thing that they wanted, that the author wanted you to get out of the story, the kids who we had prompted to explain were much more likely to be able to articulate that more abstract moral, like patience is a virtue, or um, that uh, you should be kind to people who are different from you. Um, and part of the reason why that fits into this broader story about the role of explanation in governing and guiding our lives in some ways is that you need these more abstract sorts of principles if you want to be able to generalize broadly. Right? If you want to be able to have one particular experience, one particular story, and learn something from it that you're then going to be able to apply to a context which is superficially very different. You know, instead of it being patience uh, in the context of planting a seed and waiting for a plant to grow, now you need to understand the value of patience in um, a, a context that perhaps involves a very large project at work. Um, and in order to figure out the similarity between those two superficially very different situations, you have to be able to think about things in terms of these more abstract uh, kinds of uh, generalizations or properties. And it seems like explanation is playing a very important role in allowing us to engage in that kind of abstraction. Um, and uh, we think, therefore, leading to future predictions and so on. Sure. So uh, a lab in cognitive psychology can, um, can mean a lot of different things. Often it's just workstations with computers. And we have, we'll have adults come into the lab, um, sit at a computer and do a particular task. Um, uh, when, we, when we do studies with children, often we go to them. And so often that means going to a science museum or going to a preschool um, and creating an experiment that's really more like an interactive activity or game that a child is going to want to engage with you with. So from the perspective of the child, they're just playing a game with an adult. They're just reading a storybook with an adult. Um, but of course, the materials in that game or in that storybook have been very carefully constructed to allow us to test particular hypotheses about how it is that children are learning, how it is that they're reasoning, and so on. Um, increasingly, it's becoming common in the kind of research I do, and in the field more generally, to collect data online um, using crowdsourcing platforms and so on. And that has a lot of advantages in terms of the number and diversity of participants that you can reach uh, in some ways, but also has other kinds of limitations. So um, historically, a lot of psychology studies focused on, on college students uh, as a population that was very convenient and it also gave them an opportunity to see what psychological research looks like but then of course you worry that what you're studying are Western uh, college students um, rather than something that's more general about human cognition. Um, with online samples uh, which we use a lot in my lab you get other kinds of diversity, greater diversity in terms of age, in terms of socioeconomic background uh, and so on but nonetheless you're testing people who are choosing to spend their time online uh, participating in experiments, and that's not going to be a representative sample of the American population, certainly not a representative sample of, um, of the human species. Um, so one thing that we have to be very mindful of in all of this research is thinking about who it is we're testing and how it is we can generalize our findings to uh, whatever population you think it's appropriate to generalize to, whether that's a particular age group, a particular cultural demographic, and so on. Yeah, so, so one, one important question that arises for this research, but more generally, is the extent to which we're studying something that's true of human reasoning in general, or something that's very particular to the populations that we're studying. Mm -hmm. And in the last decade, I would say, but probably even more just the last few years, there's been an increasing appreciation in psychology that we really need to think more carefully about who we are testing. I need to do a better job of testing people in different cultures and different contexts, and so on. For the kind of phenomena that I study, I think 
there's interesting questions that arise here. So for example, are you going to find important cross-cultural differences in the extent to which people are motivated to explain or the extent to which they think certain kinds of explanations are appropriate or satisfying? And the research that's been done to date suggests that indeed there are differences like that. Um, so for example, um, a lot of uh, Western educated adults will uh, not accept what are called teleological or functional explanations for many aspects of the natural world. So if I said that earthquakes happen in order to relieve pressure um, at the Earth's surface, um, that, that framing in terms of it being for the purpose of doing that um, is something which a lot of Western educated adults uh, might reject as a legitimate explanation. But what you find, uh, and this is uh, largely researched by, um, by Deborah Kellerman and her colleagues, is that in other cultures where people are less exposed to Western-style scientific education, adults are much more willing to accept those kinds of explanations. I found in um, a study that, that I did with some collaborators that patients with Alzheimer's disease are pretty willing to accept those kinds of explanations. Um, and so there seems to be something very compelling about that kind of explanation, but you find it less in Western-educated adults than in other kinds of populations. So there's a few different ways to make sense of that kind of finding. So one view is that you might think, you know, the, the underlying cognitive machinery is just fundamentally different in these different groups. They're doing something completely different when it comes to evaluating explanations. Um, and that may be, but that's not the sort of interpretation that I think is most plausible. The sort of thing that I think is more plausible is that in a lot of important ways, the machinery is basically the same, but that when it comes to evaluating explanations, you are trying to relate something to your prior beliefs about the way the world works. And what varies across these, work, these groups is their prior beliefs about the way the world works. If you are somebody who believes that um, God created the world and designed the particular characteristics it has and is governing the way that things unfold, then you might be perfectly happy to say things like earthquakes happen for this particular reason, or that uh, there are mountains because they are for climbing, or that we have the sun because it provides fuel for plants uh, so that we can eat them and so on. That's actually, I think, a perfectly reasonable explanation if you already antecedently have this particular belief about the structure of the world, if you already believe that there was a designer who created everything. Um, if you don't have that belief and you believe that um, uh, you know, the, the sun resulted as a result of physical laws and processes and so on, and that um, certain things happen due to geological processes and natural selection and so on, then you're not going to find those kinds of explanations very compelling for many aspects of the natural world. So the way that I would characterize some of these cross-cultural differences is not that people have fundamentally different things they're looking for in explanations, or differ fundamentally in the way that they reason about explanations. It's that they have different beliefs about the causal structure of the world. But the relationship between those beliefs about the causal structure of the world and then what makes something a good explanation, that relationship is pretty much the same. Um, now that's an empirical hypothesis. I don't think it's been adequately tested yet, but I do think it's consistent with the data we have so far. Um, and at least if I, had to, if I had to bet now, I'd, I'd bet on that, rather than the view that there's something uh, really different about the mechanisms involved in explanatory reasoning. Um, so I, I happen to, um, to grow up very close to, the, to UCSD, the University of California at San Diego, and that turned out to play, I think, an important role in my getting exposed to cognitive science uh, when I was pretty young. So um, when I was a junior in high school, I happened to read The Language Instinct by Steven Pinker. And at the time, my favorite uh, subjects in school were, were math and English. And part of what really fascinated me about this book was that it seemed to be applying something as formal as mathematics to the, the study of language. Um, and that seemed really appealing and um, was really my first introduction to the idea that you could have a rigorous science of aspects of behavior and mental life. And in the course of reading that book, um, Steven Pinker kept mentioning this Noam Chomsky person, as if this was a really important person who I should have heard of. And as a junior in high school, I had not heard of Noam Chomsky, but I thought, this sounds like an important person. I should learn more about Chomsky. 
So I went to my local used bookstore, DG Wills, which was a fantastic resource, and I uh, looked for something by Noam Chomsky. By sheer luck, uh, found something in linguistics rather than in, in politics, and I chose a book by Noam Chomsky um, just because it was the shortest book that seemed most uh, least daunting to me, and that was actually one of his more accessible books. It was a good choice, and. In that book, he kept talking about the cognitive revolution and cognition, and that seemed important. And so I ended up reading a lot of books, which in retrospect, I recognize uh, were very idiosyncratic choices, but basically books that I found that had cognition or cognitive science or something like that in the title. Um, and in the course of doing that, I discovered that the, UCS, the, the university that I was growing up next to, UCSD, was one of the um, best places for cognitive science and really one of the first places that had started a department of cognitive science and that had really identified that as an important discipline uh, to bring people together around. So in the course of my reading, I, I learned about um, the Churchlands, uh, Paul and Patricia Churchland, who are uh, philosophers who have made important contributions to our understanding of, of the mind and, and philosophy more generally. And I discovered that Paul Churchland was teaching a class um, called Philosophy of Cognitive Science. And I showed up to his office hours as a high school student and asked him if he'd let me take this class. And miraculously, he said yes. <laughs> and so as, as a senior in high school, I was able to take um, this phenomenal class with Paul Churchland um, and a couple of other classes at UCSD, which were really terrific experiences. Um, I also uh, had an opportunity to work in a lab at UCSD the summer before I went on to college. Um, and so the way this worked was that a teacher at my high school had actually volunteered to find a lab that would be willing to let me uh, work with them. And she asked me to go to the UCSD websites and come up with lists of faculty that I thought were interesting. And so uh, I, I did this. And she contacted most of these people who said, no, we're not interested in having a high school student come work with us. Um, but the one person who said sure was someone named Marta Kudas, who's a, a phenomenal researcher who works on language using uh, event-related potentials, sort of EEGs along the scalp to study aspects of linguistic processing. And I had a phenomenal experience working in her lab the summer after high school. So by that point, I knew that I wanted to do something related to cognitive science. I knew that I really loved research. But I didn't know what direction to go in. Um, and from there, I was an undergraduate at Stanford. And in my, my first year there, two things happened. One was that I took a philosophy of science class. And I just, I really loved philosophy of science. Um, my instructor for that class was Peter Godfrey Smith, who um, went on to be my uh, honors thesis advisor as an undergraduate. Um, and I also took a class in visual perception. And so I spent some time in that period trying to figure out if I wanted to be a cognitive psychologist, a philosopher of science, or a visual psychophysicist. Those seemed to be the, the main options. And part of what I discovered in that period is that the questions that I was most interested in were really the sort of big picture cognitive psychology kinds of questions that also have roots in philosophy, questions about how we learn, how we draw inferences. Um, and so on, uh, what our concepts are like, how it is that we uh, learn new concepts. Um, but what really attracted me to the study of visual perception was that it seemed to me like that was an area where we could ask really precise questions and really make systematic scientific progress in answering those questions. Right? It just, it's a great example of, I think, a success story in a case where we've made a huge amount of progress in understanding how the human visual system works in relating that to the underlying neuroscience and so on. And so that was very appealing, but I, I kind of wanted to do that, but with these questions that were the ones that really drove me to a greater extent, which came from uh, more cognitive psychology and philosophy. And so in the course of sort of trying to figure this all out, one thing that I realized was that within psychology, 
um, a lot of the ideas that I was most interested in, a lot of the theoretical perspectives I was most interested in, kept appealing to the role of explanation. So the way that this would come up is that there's a perspective that I'm very sympathetic to in both cognitive development and social psychology and to some extent cognitive psychology, that there's an important analogy between the way that human cognition works and the way that the scientific process works. So if we think about sort of the toy model of science, you imagine that scientists are making observations about the world, they're generating theories on the basis of those observations, they're revising those theories as they make new observations, and these theories are what then guide them to be able to do things like effectively intervene on the world and build bridges and so on. Um, and the perspective in psychology is to think that maybe we can think of, for example, the child as scientist is one way that people put this associated strongly with my colleague Alison Gopnik, or the person as scientist. Um, and the idea there is that in some ways, uh, analogously to the way that science works, we as individuals come into the world and we make observations and we construct intuitive or folk theories about the way that the world works, and we revise those theories as we have new experiences and encounter new observations and so on, and we use these theories in the way that we um, go about deciding which actions to take, um, and so on. And when you, when you push people to try to articulate that perspective, one of the really important things to try to get more clarity on is what is an intuitive theory. When we say that um, an everyday person has an intuitive theory of the social world, an intuitive theory of how people's minds work, an intuitive theory of physics or biology, what do we mean by theory there? Um, because certainly what we mean by theory in that kind of a context can't be the same as what we mean exactly by theory in science, where theory in science is extremely explicit, articulated, and so on. And these intuitive theories are much sort of messier, typically implicit sorts of things. Um, so what people will typically say is that what's key to a theory is that it represents something, it somehow embodies our explanations for how things work. Um, some sort of causal explanatory principles. That's what the theories are doing. They help us explain things. And that's the, the, really the key thing that differentiates a theory from other kinds of mental representations. It's something about the explanations that it supports or the explanations that it contains. And something about that seems right, but then of course you just want to ask the further question. Okay, um, so we, we had one mystery, which is what a theory is, and now we have this new mystery. What do we mean by an explanation in these kinds of cases? And it seemed to me like psychologists had not yet really tackled that question by trying to articulate different theories of what explanation could be and trying to test them. In contrast, in philosophy of science, people have been really, really interested in this kind of question for a long time. Um, I mean, again, certainly since Aristotle and before, but in terms of the more contemporary literature starting in the 1940s and 50s, there was an enormous effort in philosophy of science to try to develop a formal account of what it is that constitutes an explanation. What makes something a good explanation? Why does explanation play a role in science? Right? Why does that seem to be such an important part of the scientific process? And so it seems to me like there were these sort of complementary endeavors that hadn't been adequately put together yet. There were the philosophers articulating these theories in a way that was largely divorced from uh, really considerations of how it is that everyday human cognition works and how it is that explanation works in our everyday lives. They were really thinking about explanation in science overwhelmingly, but also to some extent normative questions. How should explanation operate in science? What ought to count as an explanation? Um, and then there were these psychological projects where people were invoking the idea of explanation, but without really having investigated empirically. And so that's part of what got me interested there in studying explanation is it seemed to me like there's these really fascinating questions that we want to answer and we have some conceptual tools that philosophy has already provided for how it is we might go about asking those questions. Um, so a lot of my early research involved taking the kinds of distinctions that philosophers had appreciated for decades, but then using them to ask empirical questions about the way that everyday explanatory judgments work. Um, so so one, one place where um, uh, I can give you an example of that is something like the notion of simplicity. So, 
intuitively, we like simple explanations. Um, I mean, certainly scientists have said that, philosophers have said that, many people have um, extolled the virtues of simple explanations. But as philosophers have appreciated for a really long time, it's really, really difficult to give, try to give a precise characterization of what simplicity is supposed to be. Okay. So simplicity? Uh, so if you take something like simplicity, you know, intuitively, we, we have some sense of what that means. But one thing that I think philosophy is very good at doing is taking an intuitive notion like that and then really pushing on it and forcing people to articulate different things you might mean by it and to be precise about those kinds of alternative definitions. So one of the things that I've done uh, as an example of this in my research is to try to differentiate different sorts of things that you might mean by simplicity and then to go empirically test which of those is the one that actually affects people's judgments of how good an explanation is. So one way that we've done this is in the context of a causal explanation. So a simple case where you're trying to explain why somebody has some symptoms and you want to explain it by uh, one or a conjunction of various diseases. And you might think that what makes an explanation like that simple has to do with just how many different diseases or causes in this uh, causal process you invoke in the explanation. So if you invoke uh, you know, five different sort of causal steps in this explanation, that's going to be more complicated than an explanation that invokes two or three. Um, but an alternative is that maybe what matters is not just the absolute number of these causes that you invoke in an explanation, but how many of those causes are themselves unexplained. How many of those causes are ones that you just basically have to posit as assumed to be true? Um, and that would go along with the idea that what we really care about in a simple explanation is not that it have uh, little stuff, but that it have little uh, independent parts that we just need to accept. We sort of want to reduce things to the fewest number of unexplained parts or the fewest number of assumptions. And so we pit these two ideas against each other. We had some explanations, like for example, if you want to explain two particular effects, and one possibility is they're explained by two independent causes, right? Cause one generated this one, and cause two generated this one. Um, so that involves two causes. Now I'm going to make it more complicated in the sense that I'm going to introduce one more cause. I'm going to say that both of these causes have a common cause. So now I've introduced a third cause. If what you care about is that just the number of causes in the explanation, I've made it more complicated. I've added another cause. But if what you care about is how many causes are themselves unexplained, I've actually made it simpler because I can now explain these two causes here by appeal to the common cause. And it's just this one common cause up here that's unexplained. Um, and what we find is that it's that latter sort of notion of simplicity that people actually seem to be responsive to and care about. So we found no evidence that they care about the total number of causes. So what's, uh, in, an, in an experiment like that, what we do is we pit this notion of just people favoring explanations that involve fewer causes total to explanations with the fewest number of unexplained causes. And what the evidence suggests from those studies is, is that people actually don't seem to be at all sensitive to just the brute number of causes in an explanation, but they're very sensitive to the number of unexplained causes. So they show a systematic preference for explanations that involve a smaller number of unexplained causes. Um, that's just one illustration of a way that you might take the, the kind of conceptual work that really is just standard in philosophy, where you try to make a notion precise, you try to identify different distinctions within that notion and so on, but then you sort of use those conceptual tools to address an empirical question. In this case, we're not addressing the question of what should make a good explanation, but rather the question of uh, when people in their everyday intuitive judgments find some explanations better than others, what is the notion of simplicity that they're responsive to in those kinds of cases? There, there's a lot of ways you might try to, to carve up the landscape of cognitive psychology. I think one of the important uh, division points uh, is thinking about the extent to which people think that what we, the important explanatory work in accounting for the aspects of human cognition that we care about are, are innate. 
uh, versus learned. Um, and I think like most of these dichotomies, the both endpoints are kind of uh, incoherent, right? Um, but insofar as I lean one way or the other, I think I'm really fascinated by learning mechanisms, by the fact that we are such flexible learners, that we can do so well in different sorts of environments. Um, and so I'm typically drawn more to, to perspectives that uh, try to explain how it is that we can learn something about the structure of the environment. Uh, I mean, of course, in some sense, the building blocks we have for those learning mechanisms had to have been there to begin with. Um, we, can't, we can't get somewhere from nothing. Um, but if we can understand what those mechanisms are and then how we learn to flexibly deploy them in different kinds of contexts, I think that's going to be a really key part of explaining uh, human intelligence. Um, some of the other divisions in the field, I think, are more matters of emphasis. So one thing that is often uh, discussed in, in the media is the extent to which humans are rational or uh, sort of good at reasoning versus bad at reasoning. And I think to some extent that's, that's a question of, of emphasis, right? If we get things right 80% of the time, is that phenomenal because we're getting it right 80% of the time? Or is that abysmal because there's the 20% of the time you're getting it wrong? Um, and I think often when you look at some of the debates around these issues, people don't disagree about the kinds of cases where people get things right and the kinds of cases where people get things wrong. They disagree about how important those cases are and to what extent that that really undermines the claim that humans uh, are pretty sophisticated, incredible uh, learners. And so there I think I, I tend to fall more on the glass half full side, uh, where I think it's really important to acknowledge the cases where we get things wrong. I think those cases are extremely practically consequential because we want to be able to identify them and improve human reasoning. Um, but overall, I'm more often than not impressed by how good human reasoning is. I'm really impressed by the kinds of inferences that we see even uh, three, four, and five-year-olds being able to make. Um, the fact that uh, most adults are able to navigate an extremely complicated environment uh, so effectively. Um, so you know, with that in mind, we can then turn to thinking about how we could do even better. Um, but I think it's important not to lose sight of the fact that we are extremely impressive learners. And uh, still, although perhaps not for much longer, um, the, the best learners we know of, I think, uh, for most domains, right? for the most part, artificial systems um, do not compete with humans when it comes to a lot of these tasks. One thing that uh, is a conflict in, in, in terms of how I think about the role of explanation is that I, I, you know, on alternate days, I go back and forth between two perspectives. Um, so uh, for a, a lot of um, the kinds of problems that I'm interested in, which are problems where people have a limited amount of information and they have to draw some inference that goes beyond that kind of information, and that's what's called an inductive inference. They're, they're solving inductive problems. And the normative benchmark for how it is that you should solve those kinds of problems is what's called Bayes' rule or Bayesian inference. It's basically a rule from statistics that tells you how it is that you can take the information that you have and your prior beliefs and combine those to update your beliefs appropriately. Um, and for the most part, that's accepted as just the, that's the right way to do it. We should, we should that's the right way to do it. And we can see uh, if humans are doing that uh, well or not. So I think there are some questions about whether or not we should be taking that as the right normative benchmark. Um, but the thing that I think, um, I go back and forth on in my own research is thinking about the relationship of explanation to that kind of inference. So one view that you could have, and this is a view that I had earlier in my career, I think, is that uh, there are lots of cases where human behavior seems to approximate Bayesian inference reasonably well. It seems like we are learning from the environment in a way that's pretty close to the optimal way to learn. Um, but however we're doing that is clearly not by explicitly applying this rule, right? It's just not the case that uh, people intuitively know Bayes' rule and they go about the world uh, getting observations and saying, oh, I'm going to plug this into Bayes' rule and doing the math in their heads, right? That's clearly not the way learning works. So even the people who advocate the idea that a lot of human cognition is sort of Bayesian, 
believe that there's some sort of cognitive process by which we come to approximate that kind of reasoning. And it's not going to look anything like an explicit application of this mathematical rule. And so early in my career, I thought, maybe this process of trying to explain things is one of the key mechanisms by which we come to approximate Bayesian inference. Um, maybe the way this works is that when you encounter some new observation, I now need to update my beliefs in light of that observation. And by trying to explain that observation in light of what I already believe and already think to be the case, I'm somehow performing this kind of computation where I'm integrating the new evidence with my prior beliefs in order to update my beliefs in a way that's going to turn out to be a pretty good proxy for Bayesian, uh, Bayesian, a Bayesian posterior, sort of what you should believe after this type of updating process. Um, so on that view, you know, explanation is basically a means to Bayesian inference. And increasingly, I'm coming to think that that's not the right way to think about what explanation is doing. Um, and that's motivated both by some empirical findings that have come out of the literature, which suggests that when you're explaining, what you're doing actually seems to take you farther away from calculating a Bayesian posterior than when you're not explaining. Um, and also from just thinking about the range of different kinds of epistemic and social goals that we have. So the sense in which Bayesian inference is the normative standard or optimal is that if you want to, in the long run, minimize your inaccuracy, then you probably really should be updating your beliefs in light of Bayes' rule. That would be a good thing for you to be doing if what you want to do is minimize your long-term inaccuracy. But that's not the only thing that we care about. That's a really important thing that we care about. Um, but sometimes you just want to be mostly right quickly. And so you're willing to sacrifice some amount of accuracy for efficiency, even if it's going to mean you get something wrong in some cases. Sometimes what we want to do is be really persuasive. Um, sometimes what we want to do is come up with a convenient way, a convenient shortcut or shorthand for solving a particular type of problem, which again might be wrong some of the times, but it's going to be much easier to implement um, in, other, in other kinds of cases. So there's all sorts of different kinds of epistemic and social goals that we might have. Um, and increasingly, I'm thinking that maybe whatever the, uh, the explanation probably doesn't just have one goal, it probably has multiple goals, but that whatever it is, it's probably not just the thing that uh, Bayesian inference tracks. It's probably tracking some of these other things. There's, there's some, going to be some features of explanation that we have because they're the sorts of things which perhaps facilitate the development of mental representations which can be used easily or that can be communicated easily. Um, and so that's going to lead us to some systematic departures from accuracy, but maybe those trade-offs are worthwhile in various kinds of cases. So th that's a question that I go, that go back and forth on, and I don't think I have a clear view about it except to say that I'm moving away from the view that I had earlier in my career. I, I think I've been influenced by a lot of different people. So some, a couple of them I've mentioned already. Uh, one very important influence in my thinking uh, was my PhD advisor, Susan Carey. And she, she's best known for her contributions in cognitive development and thinking about how to think about the kinds of representations that infants are born with. But I think one of the most valuable things that I learned from her was how to take uh, big complicated questions about the nature of learning and conceptual representation and try to address those questions empirically and do so in a way that engages with the big picture philosophical issues that motivated the questions to begin with. And she's someone who's continuing to do uh, fascinating work um, as well. A lot of the inspiration for um, the way I'm thinking about explanation comes from some recent developments in a field called formal epistemology. And formal epistemology is uh, an extension of, of epistemology and philosophy. Epistemology is concerned with questions about what knowledge is, how we come to know, when our beliefs are justified, and so on. And uh, 
for the most part, historically, that was approached in the same way that other philosophical areas were approached with a certain kind of conceptual analysis and uh, arguments and so on. And what formal epistemology does is try to answer some of those questions and uh, close neighbors of those questions, but using the kinds of formal tools which have historically been more characteristic of fields like statistics and computer science um, and so on, and mathematics. Uh, and sort of within that area, some people have started to take a very formal approach to thinking about explanation. And um, that's nice because it both allows you to have the kind of quantitative position you, you need in predictions to be able to test predictions against human behavior, um, and also because it, it allows you to be very precise in your characterization of what you mean by explanation, how it relates to something like uh, Bayes' rule, and so on. And so within that literature, um, there's, there's two people, Igor Dubin and Jonas Shupak, who've been uh, exploring uh, what they've been calling explanationism um, as an alternative to the idea that uh, the way we ought to be updating our beliefs is just by following something like Bayes' rule. And so that's been, that's been influential in my thinking lately. I, I can't say exactly where it might go in terms of um, either the empirical uh, studies or the theoretical picture that will emerge from it. Um, but I think they're certainly raising new and interesting possibilities in this landscape. So I think a, a really reasonable question for someone to be wondering is if there are any real-world implications of this type of research, right? Why, why should we care? Um, about being able to uh, articulate the fine microstructure of people's explanatory judgments and the fact that we explain particular ways and so on. Uh, and I think there's a, a few different reasons why I think this actually is really important. Uh, the, the one that's motivated my research for the most part so far is the, the one that's more internal to cognitive science, and that has to do with the theoretical implications. You know, what does this mean for the way we think about learning? If we take seriously these phenomena of learning by thinking, or learning without some new data, I think we really need to rethink our theories of learning. So that's, that's the reason I think this really matters for cognitive science. Cognitive science really cares about learning, about inference, about reasoning, and I think explanation is just fundamental to that. Um, but I think there's also two realms where this really matters for the real world. So one of them has to do with cases where we make mistakes. Um, and the ability for a better understanding of human reasoning to allow us to correct those kinds of mistakes, to engage in what's sometimes called debiasing. Right? So if we, if we understand the kinds of cognitive errors we make better, then maybe we can intervene on the real world to generate better decision making. So if we know that people prefer simpler explanations where simplicity is defined in a particular way, and that they do so even when those explanations are not the ones that are best supported by the evidence, then we know they're making a mistake there. And so the sorts of things that I'm interested in doing are saying, okay, well, do we see people in the real world making that mistake when doctors are faced with a decision, a diagnosis problem that has the structure where they're pitting the explanation that's simpler in one sense against the one that's actually more likely in light of the data? Do we see them making the wrong decision? Um, if so, then maybe we can, you know, we know where to look for those kinds of errors based on this kind of uh, theory and empirical work, and we can think about how does we correct those kinds of errors. So one broad goal is to hopefully develop some tools for identifying real-world mistakes and how to correct those kinds of real-world mistakes, because those decisions can be very consequential. The other way that this might turn out to have some implications is for artificial intelligence. And I think there's two ways to think about that there. So one is that if it turns out that explanation is just this crucial part of how humans actually learn, then maybe understanding how it is that explanation plays that role can help us build better uh, machine learning systems, for example, right? We know that humans solve certain kinds of problems much better than the best AI. Um, to the extent those problems are ones that, in fact, humans solve using things like explanation, we want to be able to understand that so that we can build better artificial systems. But the other way that explanation fits in is uh, through what's, what's now being called sometimes explainable AI. 
And this points to a challenge which has emerged from a lot of the recent advances that we've seen in areas of artificial intelligence and machine learning, which is that you can end up with a situation where you have, uh, say, a particular deep learning system, a neural network, a very complicated neural network, that uh, solves your problem extremely well. It might have extremely good predictive accuracy. But if you ask someone, what is it doing? Why did it get that right? Why did it make that mistake? That is extremely opaque. And in fact, it can even be opaque to the person who designed and implemented the system. Right? There's, there's something these systems are doing, but they've gotten to a level of complexity um, uh, and a kind of structure that they learn themselves from the data that can make it extremely opaque and not transparent from the outside to understand what they're doing. And so one of the challenges for explainable AI is to think about how it is we can actually understand as engineers, as consumers, as doctors who need to know how seriously to take the output of some system that tells us some diagnosis is likely. We need to be able to understand those kinds of systems. Um, and so in order to do that, well, we really need to know a lot about what it takes to give us that sense of understanding. What is it that's going on when we receive an explanation? What makes it a good explanation? How does that affect our downstream behavior, right? So I think all of these kinds of empirical questions that I'm addressing um, end up having this really practical kind of application when it comes to thinking about the latest technology that we're developing and how to get it to interact effectively with humans. One of the ways that people have tried to get a handle on what it is that makes something an explanation is by differentiating it from other things we do. So an explanation versus a description, an explanation versus a prediction, and so on. And I don't think that I've seen a very satisfying way of cleanly articulating what that distinction is. But what seems to be really crucial to explanation, which I think you might not get from these other things like prediction or description, is a sense of understanding. Right? I mean, some people do go so far as to say that what makes something an explanation is that it generates understanding. Um, and other people will define things the other way first. They'll say that what generates understanding is having an explanation. Um, so I don't have a, a well-articulated view on sort of which comes first, explanation or understanding, but it seems to me that those are intimately related and that, what, that you don't necessarily get understanding from a description. You don't necessarily get understanding from a prediction. Um, so part of the reason why I think uh, these problems that uh, emerge with this new technology in the context of explainable AI are uh, related specifically to explanation is because explanation is the thing that is intimately related to understanding. I've been talking a lot about explanation because I think it's really a theoretically rich topic and a really important one and a consequential one. but. In some ways, what I, I think I want to emphasize by talking about explanation is ways in which philosophy and psychology can be fruitfully brought together to address these kinds of topics. So I think what's characteristic of the way that I've approached explanation in my research um, and the way I've been talking about it to some extent is that it, it tries to borrow the, sort of the best of the conceptual tools we get from philosophy with the empirical tools that we get from psychology. And that kind of approach isn't something that only applies to the case of explanation, that applies extremely broadly. There's so many areas of really rich and fruitful contact between philosophy and psychology. And some of the ones that I've just focused on in my own research include uh, aspects of causal reasoning, which relates to explanation, but is also diverges from it in various cases. Aspects of moral reasoning, uh, why it is that we have the particular kinds of moral beliefs that we do, how it is that we evaluate when somebody is blameworthy and when they should be punished, and so on. Um, but you also see this in many other kinds of cases, aspects of, of language, aspects of how we think about other people's minds, aspects of how we think about social structure. I think these are all the kinds of topics that uh, really, really benefit from the insights of both philosophy and psychology.